Feel free to take the word of God and turn to Matthew chapter number 2 this morning. Matthew chapter number 2. And as odd as it may be to read out of the book of Job on Christmas, it may be just as odd the text that I've selected this morning for our sermon, but I pray that you'll hang on with me, that there will be hope coming. I had considered just preaching out of Philippians and carrying on our exposition, um, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Um, if I'd have been savvy enough, I would have planned the sermons there to preach the incarnation in chapter 2, but we weren't just quite weren't there. Um, but I do want to take advantage this morning um, of our minds being um, engulfed, uh, I hope and pray, in the birth narrative of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and bring you a text this morning that, and a sermon that I pray provokes your mind and heart and thinking and um, God uses it as a means to strengthen your faith and uses it in your life to make you more like his son. So if you're willing and able, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. And we'll pick up our reading this morning in verse number 16 of Matthew chapter 2. Let me read this concerning the inspired word of God. Matthew writes, according to the Spirit, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Let's pray. Father, again we come to you just to praise and to honor you. Father, your son this morning deserves his name, his character, his nature, his work to be exalted above measure. Father, you've placed that yoke. And what a privilege of a yoke to carry, Father, and burden upon your people such that it feels like no burden at all. Father, as I stand before your bride this morning in all of her beauty, knowing that you are here in the presence of your son who walks among the candlesticks, Father, it is as if we are sandwiched between glory and glory. Father, would you help us to revel this morning in the glory of your Son? Father, would we display that character in nature such that it is made manifest and known, um, Father, to all those who are present among us and even to those, Father, um, who are not. Maybe those who are listening, Father, by way of technology, hear, hear a sermon or see a service years down the road, Father. We pray that you would use this and take it as far as you desire. Father, we pray that your will would be accomplished this morning as we sit before you, Father, and we sit under the reading and preaching and proclamation of your word. And Father, just pray that you would help us to be faithful. Um, we have desires as to what we desire to be accomplished this morning, Father. I know what I want. Um, yet at the same time, Father, I want what you want. So take our desires and, and dis dispose of them, Father, if they um, are desires to consume it upon our own lust. Father, help us to humble ourselves this morning under the mighty hand of God, that you may accomplish eternal things through the presence of your Son, Father, and by the power of your Spirit. So as we approach the text this morning, give us just a few moments this Christmas morning, this Lord's Day, Resurrection Day. Um, give us a few moments, Father, where we approach your word with the utmost reverence, yet at the same time, Father, overflowing with joy. Father, comfort us, encourage us, edify us, build us up, Father. Help us to mortify our sins. Help us to repent and believe this morning as we come to the text. And we leave it in your hands, Father, because we know that apart from you, apart from your Son, we can do nothing. So, Father, do what you desire in this moment. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. <clears throat> One of the great tragedies of American modern Christianity is that we've sterilized most of the biblical stories of anything and everything that we might um, argue would offend 
your modern, our modern portrayal of biblical accounts such as Noah and the ark is often portrayed as a quaint little story, picturesque of Noah and the ark with two cute little animals of each kind poking their heads out of the ark on a sunny day, all smiles and faces. Or the story of Jonah is pictured as Jonah sitting inside of a big whale with its ribs as walls while he's cooking dinner by the fire, waiting on his release. Christ's birth, too, is a cute little baby Jesus in a manger, surrounded by onlookers, farm animals in the background, everyone welcoming our Lord in a peaceful and a serene type of environment. You know, as the song says, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. It's cute, it's quaint, it's sweet, it's benign. And it's these benign versions of stories, these biblical accounts that we're able and encouraged to tell our children. But the children rarely hear about the judgment of God that came with the floods or the horrific nature of the rebellion of Jonah. And in a similar vein, when we think of the Christmas story, Rarely do we tell our children or think of what we just read. When you think of Bethlehem, what do you think of? The place of Christ's birth? Maybe shepherds? Wise men? A manger? A stable? A silent night? But in the days, the months, and possibly years following our Lord's birth, I don't believe that that would have been what struck those who were ingrained in the community of Bethlehem's minds. What do you think of this morning when I say Columbine, Colorado, or Sandy Hook? The memory for some of us is still fresh in our minds, those very events. I remember vividly sitting in a classroom my sophomore year of high school at Dobbins Bennett, taking just a moment of silence for the children that were lost in a school shooting in Columbine, Colorado. I can still smell the room. I can see the chalkboard. I can see the people surrounding me. I remember days after that, um, you know, and, and even just that semester, I remember masses of children would take days out of school because of the rumors of a school shooting, even here in Kingsport, Tennessee. It changed the way we thought. It changed the way we felt. It changed the way we acted. In some sense, it changed protocols. It changed everything that semester. Um, it changed everything in us, you know. And it even changed the way we thought about life. It made us more thankful, you know. It made us hug our families differently. It gave us gratitude. And I would venture to say the same thing in some sense, about those in Bethlehem following the birth of our Lord. That is, when someone mentioned Bethlehem, you may have gotten excitement on their face because some, as they thought of the birth of our Lord and that wonderful, glorious um, evening in which our Lord and Savior was brought into this world, but more than likely in the common man and the common woman and those in that surrounding area, it was not so much of a cute, warm, quaint feeling, but a sense of sorrow and a sense of horror. We read here in Matthew 2 of the coming of our Lord. It is a coming in which it is much anticipated by the people of God throughout all the ages. Matthew tells us that Christ was born, our Lord and Savior Jesus was born here in that very place, Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. And that's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that he was born in the days of a man by the name of Herod the king. Herod really was somewhat of a false king, a king by title, granted certain privileges by Rome, but he thought of himself more of a king than what he really was. Um, Herod was under the authority of uh, Caesar Augustus. He was a ruler in an era, particularly under Roman rule, when the lives of children were extremely undervalued, if valued at all. See, Roman policy gave the father ultimate authority in his home even to the extent that a Roman father could dispose of his child at any time without any legal retribution. 
I don't want to undermine what might be the greatest horror in American history, the Holocaust of the unborn in America, but really the philosophy of Rome no doubt rivaled that of the ethic of the American mindset today in regards to abortion. It was truly a, a wicked, wicked time. Um, Herod was a truly wicked man. History records that he was a power-hungry, self-aggrandizing, tyrannical ruler uh, insofar as Rome would allow him. It's believed that this same Herod put two of his own sons to death because they got in the way of his rule and his reign. And those of his family that would live would carry on in his evil tradition. His son would murder John the Baptist. His grandson would murder James the Just. So you can imagine what runs through this man's mind and his heart as he hears of the word of a possible Messiah, one who would rival his authority, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. One who would come to free those who are currently under his rule and his reign. One that would rival his authority. As Pharaoh in Egypt... As Moses seeks to deliver the people from slavery, Herod would balk at the thought of the one, the king of the Jews, prophesied of old, um, being uh, chattered about among the Jews who are under his authority and care, coming to free the Jewish people under his rule. So the text tells us in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Quote, he was troubled. Thus he inquires as to where Christ would be born. Bethlehem, of course, as prophesied in Micah. So in verse number 7, we see Herod call the wise men. Those wise men. We're getting back to the, to the Christmas story we know now. And sends them to Bethlehem to search out the young child and to report to him that he could worship the child. They found him. Those wise men offered gifts. And they worshipped our Lord. They were changed in that moment in some sense. Um, but the following, they were warned in a dream about Herod, and departed to their own country another way. When they leave, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him to take that child to Egypt because, quote, Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. End quote, verse number 13. Thus they did. In the meantime, Herod hears about the wise man, becomes extremely angry, the text says. He sends forth a decree then to put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem. And all the districts from two years old and under. Verse 17 then says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. What we read of, as tragic and horrific as it is, it's not an uncommon story in all the scriptures, or even an uncommon story in life. We live in a sin-cursed world, and I know that this seems like an odd sermon this morning. I promise we'll get to the hope. But what's going to happen across many services today? Our people are going to gather together because of this, um, underneath this sterilized, benign type of Biblical Americanized children's story. And they're going to seek to be comforted in their consciences. To live as they so please. And what we have to realize is that when Jesus Christ entered into the world. It wasn't all frills. Rainbows and butterflies. That he entered into a sin cursed world. In an environment of the utmost evil. And God, by His grace and His sovereign providence, not only here, but all throughout human history, and the biblical narrative is battling that very evil who is coming against the seed of our Messiah, that who is Christ, to abolish and to forgive that very sin. That we live in it, that this text, when we read the biblical narrative, what we must realize is that when Christ enters into the world, the Christmas story is in the Christmas, is in, in, in the context, in the environment of a sin-cursed world. We live in a sin-cursed world. And you know that. You walked in here this morning from a sin-cursed family and a home. You were fallen. 
And some of us, is that Christmas morning, this morning, we were gripped by that very sin as we battled with it. The law of our nature versus the very law of Christ, the law of God in our own hearts. We battled with jealousy this morning, possibly. We battled with grief. We battled with anxiety. We battled with envy. We battled with anger as we're getting ready for church. And we were reminded. That what we need to be rem- to remember as we come into the presence of God this morning and as we sit among Christ's bride and we sit under His world is not to be deceived. I mean, to, to, to believe that, that um, in some type of spiritual um, uh, head-in-the-clouds optimist type of thinking that we just need to l- let it go and let God and He'll take care of it all and, and, and this and that. But that we are... Um, in a sin-cursed world, we are battling for that. And Jesus Christ enters into the world to save us from that very, that very sin. What we see, number one, in the text is the conflict that Christ provokes in this world. It is the conflict that, that the very presence of Christ provokes a conflict in this world of even the most horrific crimes and kinds. We must not forget that Jesus Christ is not born into this world to soothe our consciences or to help us to be better versions of ourselves by strengthening our weaknesses and utilizing our strengths to make us more comfortable in our skin so that we could be all that we can be and should be. But Jesus Christ enters into a fallen world hostile toward Him. He enters into a world of those, yes, looking forward to His coming, but also a greater portion against Him. You may say... Herod didn't really hate Jesus. In some sense, that's true. He loved himself. Yet, but his love for himself caused him to hate anyone and anything that would stand in the way of his love for himself. And what greater threat to him, his love for himself, than the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in which he would not submit such that anger and hatred provoked him to give orders to send Roman henchmen into a community to slaughter the innocent. With as little details as possible, imagine this morning if authorities walked in here and said, give me your children, age two and under. Can you imagine the screams? Can you imagine the horror? Can you imagine the fighting? Can you imagine the fathers that would lose their lives? The mothers that could not be consoled? Imagine that's the world that Jesus enters into. That's the world that Jesus desires to save. That's the conflict that Christ provokes. And this is not something that's new to humanity or history. It's not something that's new to the biblical birth account. This is not something that began 2,000 years ago and is seemingly taking root now in the American culture, this hatred of Christ. I mean, it, 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 it is something that began in the Garden of Eden ages ago. Sin was born in the heart of our father Adam and subsequently in the hearts of all mankind. And since that time, it has not, it has not manifested itself simply as someone slightly on the wrong path. It's not manifested itself in men and women who are largely good or even neutral with an occasional um, serial killer, a Hitler or a Stalin. The reality is that the sense of the fallen race is not fallen in darkness and seeking light, but in lunging headlong into darkness and loving it. And this is all of us. John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. The nature of sin is not so grievous because men and women are making mistakes or missing the mark of their own potential, but in that they miss the mark of the glory of God. And in missing the glory, it's more than just striving to hit the mark and missing it after striving. It's the fact that they create, we create our own mark and hit that mark. They have to destroy God's mark to do it. Romans chapter number one, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? So that they can be unrighteousness. The strange thing is, to think that what happens in Matthew 2 is strange. It's a manifestation of all of our hearts if there was no restraint. Um, This is the world in which we live. It is a fallen world. It's a sin-cursed world. 
This is a horrific account. But this is not unique to Jesus' day. The world has always hated Christ. We have always, outside of His pardoning grace, have always hated Christ. Why? Because we've loved ourselves. We see this play out in the beginning with Adam and his rebellion against God for Eve. We see the conflict prophesied and embodied in Genesis 3.15 that there would be an enmity between uh, the serpent and the seed, uh, the, between man, between Adam and an and enmity against the serpent and that there would be one that would come and that great promise of one who would crush the head of the serpent yet it would bruise his heel that there would be this constant enmity between Satan as we know the Revelation tells us and he's that old serpent serpent, that dragon of old, and between Christ. And it would manifest itself um, not only in our Lord's birth narrative, but it would manifest itself all throughout human history. And that's part of the narrative and the thrust of the Old Testament. When we get to Cain and Abel, when we get to Abraham and the promises of a promised seed that would bless the nations, when we get to Rachel here in the text, when we get to the judges, the land of Israel, the exile, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, um, which this is a quote from, what we see is this war between um, God and man, between man and serpent, between serpent and God, how the devil is is striving to destroy the seed um, because of a hatred of God, particularly a hatred of Christ. And here it manifests itself in the gospel narrative um, beginning at this young child's birth such that it would, it would import anger into the heart of a man that he would seek to destroy the image of God um, insofar as he could to ensure his rule and his own reign. And that's what we see here in Matthew chapter number 2. And I don't want to discourage you this morning. Um, I think you all know that. You know? And that the great hope that we have um, and the glory that's painted upon the canvas of Christ this morning is upon the darkness of that type of world. That Jesus Christ enters in to save those men. To save men like Herod. To save men like you and like me. And that's what we see here in the text. That's what we see in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. That is quoted here. That's what we see in Genesis chapter number 35. Turn with me to Jeremiah. And you may want to just... Filter over to Genesis chapter number 35 as well. Jeremiah chapter 31. What we see here in Matthew chapter number 2 is Matthew, by the inspiration of the Spirit, looking back to Jeremiah and he directly quotes Jeremiah in verse number 18. Verse number 18 of Matthew 2 says, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What Matthew tells us in verse number 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. And what he is arguing is is that what is spoken of here in Matthew 2 is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 and verse number 15. When you read this, Thus says the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. If you were to turn to Genesis, you would find that there's another layer to this. That Jeremiah is pulling from the picture of what happened to Rachel in Genesis chapter number 35. Verse number 16, you read this. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrathah, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departed, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. Jacob set a pillar of her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Genesis 35, we read of a mother, 
on her way to Bethlehem. You'll remember the story of Jacob. He's married to Rachel as well as Leah. You'll remember that his original and greatest love was Rachel. He's deceived though, works for her for seven years. He's deceived into Mary and Leah, so he works another seven years, a total of 14 years um, to receive this wife, Rachel. Coming back into the promised land on the way to Bethlehem, Rachel goes into labor, a very hard labor, one that would take her life. Um, Here's Rachel. There's Ramah. In Genesis 35, we read of a woman in child labor um, who is mourning. She is weeping. She is lamenting as her life was being drained from her related to the complications in childbirth. She's had this great promise that her child would live But she wouldn't, and it caused her great pain. And it's also maybe important to note that Jacob's favored wife, as he after he marries her, her womb is barren. Actually, in Genesis 30, in verse number one, she expresses to Jacob, "Give me children, or I die." What happens? She gives birth to to Joseph, and then her second child would be Benjamin, Benoni. She would name it the son of my sorrow. But Jacob wouldn't give her that. That privilege, he would change it to son of my right hand. What he would be known of, as, as known from there on as, as Benjamin, the son of, of my right hand. And thus in the name you would see that she dies with a great sorrow. Her tears are pouring forth on her deathbed. Seems like a natural sorrow, but we may argue in a little bit that it's more than, um, than that. And thus, Matt, Jeremiah draws... Back to Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse number 15. Jeremiah draws from that picture. It's a whole new context, but it's the nation of Israel now. And what you see here is Jeremiah prophesying of the exile of the nation of Israel due to their covenant disobedience. Um, As a result of that, their children are going to be taken from the land. They're going to be passed into captivity under Babylonian and Assyrian captivity, particularly here Babylonian. And he's prophesying, mothers of Judah here in Jeremiah 31 at Ramah, mourning over the loss of their children. There's exile coming. And Ramah was the place at this point where all of it would take place. It was going to be a staging place to cart them off into exile in Jeremiah chapter number 40. Death and captivity, again, is their lot. That's Jeremiah pulls from Genesis chapter 35, something that these Jewish people would have known and understand, the death of Rachel, how how horrifying it was, how tragic it was, how much of a blessing it would have been had she been able to raise that child on her own. And we see the, the natural separation, the death um, uh, of, of Rachel there, and the tears and the sorrow that is in, embodied in the name that she, she gives him. And, and he says now, in some sense, typologically, in a picture, Rachel is standing up over Israel in Ramah, crying and weeping over the separation that's going to happen between Israel and their sons and daughters. They're going to be carried off. You remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, That's just a small portion and the positive aspect of the exile. Many will die in the Babylonian sea. Many of the children will will cease to exist and those who don't will be carried off into slavery. So Jeremiah says and prophesies in Jeremiah 31 of a time that is going to be um, Israel will be weeping, tormented by that. Thus Matthew chapter number 2 um, we see a similar Matthew, a similar episode. Matthew pulls from Genesis, but particularly from Jeremiah to a Jewish audience whom they would have understood what happened in the exile, what happened to Rachel, and, and, and argues that, that, that what is happening now in Bethlehem, it is as if Rachel is standing up and mourning the children that are losing their lives in Bethlehem, and many commentators, historians say anywhere from 20 children to 100 children would have died in that community that night. Um, man, what a Christmas sermon. <laughs> it is no doubt weeping in Matthew 2 because of the devastation and the evil that little image bears of God. But it seems to be even more than that. Imagine for a moment the proclamation of those men and women who went throughout the streets of Bethlehem and beyond shouting, the Messiah is born, the Messiah is born. Did you see the angel? Did you see the wise men? Did you see the baby? Um, 
We don't have any indication that they knew that Mary and Joseph had fled. They did it secretly or by night, the text says. It may have been that others wept not only for their children, but also for the Messiah. It may be that there's not only natural sorrow here, but also a spiritual sorrow. We don't get that necessarily from Genesis chapter 35 and Rachel, but we do get it from Jeremiah as well as this text, that the sorrow and the weeping is not so much natural, but there is a, a, a layer laid upon that, a tear of, uh, above that, a type of that, that, that there is weeping and mourning here because of, of the battle between the serpent and the seed. The great question in their minds in some sense is not only what will happen to my children physically, but what will happen to my children spiritually? What will happen to the nation of Israel? That's been one of the great questions all throughout the Old Testament. Abraham's given a promise. His wife is barren. He goes to God and he asks God, how? And God, why? How in the world will, will my family uh, inherit the nations in some sense be a blessing if she is barren? I mean, it's natural, right? It's logical. He's arguing with God in, 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 a, in a true, real, um, uh, seeking to know sense. But he's wondering, if this is the promise, how will you keep your promise if she doesn't have a seed? So he opens the womb. And the battle of the ages throughout the Old Covenant um, seems to be that battle after and for the seed. So, so what's the question? What's the mourning? What's the weeping in Jeremiah chapter 31? It may be a question of covenant. God, how will then you keep your covenant? What will happen to the Messiah? If the nation's being dispersed, then how will you keep your promise? Not only how will our children be saved naturally, but how in the world will they be saved spiritually? What will happen to the Messiah? What will happen to the seed if something happens to the land? What happens if we are dispersed? How will you keep your promise? And it may very well be that the lamentation and the mourning that's happening here in this text this morning and 2,000 years ago that it's going among a Jewish family and a community in Bethlehem may be, yes, that they can't be consoled because, because of this evil man here taking their children. But there will, may be well even a greater question, what about the salvation of your people? What happens if the Messiah dies? You know, what happens? We know he's in the community. What happens if he goes? What happens, Father, to your promise? Revelation 12, the dragon seeks, we know, to devour the woman, to devour the seed. We've seen it battled in the particular people of, of the old covenant, the nation of Israel, and even Israel within Israel. What will happen if he's gone? Father, will in some sense, they may be questioning here the promises of God. And finally, we get to number two. Not only the crisis or the conflict that Christ provokes um, and His birth provokes, but secondly, the comfort that Christ promises. This is the Christmas sermon you wanted um, from here on out. The coming of our Lord, even to this day, provokes a conflict. It provoked a particular one in those days. The question may then be, if that happened, the question may be, where in the world does that come from? You know? Why are they weeping? Why are they here? Some draw the conclusion here, again, that they refuse to be comforted in, in Matthew chapter 2 because of a sense of faithlessness. But they refuse to be comforted because they were no more, their children speaking. Naturally, beyond comfort, because there, there, is, there seems to be no hope. That's the idea. As I was arguing just a moment ago, that they seem to be refusing to be comforted um, because if the children are gone and the seed is smashed out and destroyed, then, then where's the hope? The comfort to this morning that Christ offers in His promises is the comfort of hope. That's the point of this text I'm going to argue this morning. That when Matthew takes Jeremiah 31 and verse 15 and says now that these words here are fulfilled I imagine the readers, who were largely Jewish, would have understood the context. And it would do us well to understand it too. Because in 21st century American context, we might be appalled by such a proof text. You might be appalled this morning that I would even preach on this text. It doesn't seem all that glorious or glamorous. 
I mean, the children are being murdered. And a preacher says, hey, this is the fulfillment of that. How in the world does that produce hope? But is that all that would come to the mind when it was quoted to the Jewish Bethlehemite mother or father? Verse 15, actually, if you were to turn, I want you to turn again to Jeremiah, if you still have your your thumb there, Jeremiah chapter 31. If you're familiar with Jeremiah 31, then what you'll notice is that Jeremiah 31 and verse number 15 actually sticks out like a sore thumb. It is an uncommon verse in the theme of Jeremiah chapter number 31. Verse 15 actually seems like it doesn't belong in the text. Why? Because the rest of the chapter is so full of hope. It is reaping, it is weeping with comfort and blessing, not um, terror and lamentation. Jeremiah 31 through 33 is actually often referred to as the book of consolation. Jeremiah 31, 1, for example, you would read this. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Verse number 16, Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping. You could go on and read of the future prosperity of Judah. You could read of the promises of them returning from captivity. You could read of the greatest promise, I think, in this entire text. In verse number 31, where there's a promise of a new covenant. Verse number 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their minds, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me." From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more that this fulfillment in Matthew chapter two is sandwiched in a passage of scripture, chapters of the very word of God that are dripping with the blessings of those of the those that are making new covenant with him in, in, a, in a day that is to come when beyond the captivity, Christ would be their savior and Messiah would come. That the hope is dripping from this. The initial fulfillment would happen one to two generations. Seventy years later, after this prophecy, they would come out of captivity. They would rebuild their temple under Ezra. But Matthew tells us that this is merely a type, a shadow, a picture. Something that truly and really happened. But they said that if you glory, in some sense we could say, if you glory in that reality of the dispersion and the exile of the people of God throughout the nations, and you glory in the reality of the gathering back in 70 years later in the salvation of your people, if you glory in the deliverance from Egypt, Matthew is saying the Messiah has come, glory even more. In the midst of the weeping, a true natural sorrow, you must hope in God. You must look to Christ. There's an initial fulfillment in Jeremiah that, that is promised of old, but Matthew looks at that, pulls it into the New Testament at the birth of Christ and says that this is the greater reality. Look beyond that and hope in God. Thus he says in Jeremiah um, 31 and verse 16, immediately following our text this morning and the quotation of it, he says, thus says the Lord, after, he's, after, after Rachel stands up weeping as Israel over those that are being exiled, this is what he says. He says, refrain your voice from weeping. Stop your crying. And wipe away your tears. For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope. In your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. 
I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. And I was, you have chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me and I will return for you are the Lord, my God. Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. So set up signposts, he says. Make landmarks. Set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to the city, to these your cities. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. And there's this conversation that as she is weeping, Rachel stands up over the exile. God stands up with His promises and says, wipe away all your tears. If Ephraim will return, it is my desire to bring her back in. Look unto me, all ye labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thus there is hope in this promise. So in Matthew chapter number 2, the comfort of hope is, is, is dripping in this, uh, this, this New Testament fulfillment. That there is crying for a season, but there is comfort for those mothers that, that they are to look to the promises of God and the greater hope that is beyond them. That has been an initial fulfillment, yes, but a greater. A greater. So what about all the babies that were lost? And there are some commentators, even men of old, who would hold that there was a natural fulfillment that, that, um, that contained within this promise as well. And I know that this is debatable and even controversial um, among some. Um, but that they too would see their children one day. John Gill takes the position that naturally speaking that, that there is a, a comfort to these mothers here that one day, um, as David would argue, that he would too see his children, that they would be brought back to the borders, that the borders was heaven and the graves um, were the enemy um, or a, a, a death would be a tool of the enemy. Uh, but even greater than that, um, it is Matthew saying the Messiah has come. The new covenant is here. The reality. Um, he is coming. Have hope. Look beyond the natural. Find peace in some sense. Restrain your weeping. There is hope in the future. Thus, Matthew 2 and verse 17 is the ultimate, the ultimate fulfillment is Christ Jesus coming in a lowly manger who will providentially be protected and supernaturally be protected by God the Father and the power of the Spirit as He would lead and guide um, the, uh, through the submission of parents, the protection of this child who would grow some 30 years later to be the Son of God, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Thus, the the conquest that Christ began would prevail. We see the, the, the crisis or the conflict that Christ provokes in the world. He enters into a sin-cursed world to die for that world. And although all hell, the world, and the flesh would guard against that and conspire against that, Psalm chapter 2, the nations would rage, they would conspire against our Lord. We know that Christ prevailed. The conquest was won. Victory was given to Him. Christ was preserved. And you read that Matthew chapter number 2 and verse number 19. Now when Herod was dead, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Arise, take the young child. The child was preserved. God kept His promise. He would grow in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord in stature with God. Uh, he would grow in wisdom and knowledge and in stature with God, or, uh, with God and man. That he would grow into um, the one who would take away the sins of the whole world. And that, that Matthew chapter 2, as the proclamation is going out after, they had, after the mothers and the fathers had lost these little ones, a sin-cursed earth, they say that the preacher is going through, the, 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 the prophet is going through the town comforting them with this. With this text pulling Jeremiah 31 out of the old covenant, pointing them towards a new, a greater hope, a peace beyond measure. And he's saying, as in Revelation, wipe away your tears. 
And thus He offers a healing to their hearts um, that is more than just natural. In their refutation, their, their refusal to be comforted, um, the Word of God goes forth to wipe away their tears. He wants there is comfort for those who mourn. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Only God's people truly know what true sorrow is and true joy. And thus He offers to these people, as well as to you and I today, I'm a Messiah that if we'll turn to God, can ease the pain, not necessarily remove all the sorrow, but in the midst of the sorrow, we too can rejoice. Just as He calls to Ephraim this morning in Jeremiah 31, to a people who, would, who, was, who was not His people, who would be His people. Peter, First um, Peter chapter number 2, quotes that, that, that seemingly that very phrase, that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who were not His people, who are now His people. That you are the new covenant, according to Hebrews chapter 7 through 10, that you are those new covenant believers who are brought into the family of God. And that if you'll have true sorrow this morning over your sin in this sin-cursed world, that, that He can comfort and be the balm and the medicine that you need. That what we see here this morning, wrapped up in the Christmas story and somewhat of an obscure text as Job was, is almost a similar story to Job. A God who comes in the midst of pain and suffering and horror and tragedy and the decay of a sin-cursed world with the devil, the hell and flesh and all that they have and offers hope and comfort to a people who don't deserve hope and comfort by making them a people who were not His people but writing a law upon their hearts and giving them a life that was not yet theirs. Again, this type of sermon is somewhat strange. But it's only strange because we've sterilized the birth narrative of our Lord and made it benign. What is strange is that we would frame the story of our Lord's birth as we want it. Like a Facebook picture or a frame on our walls. We want to see what we want them to see. So we crop out the undesirables to make us seem more desirable. Not realizing the deception of it all. But when you get me, you get all of me. That's the reality of the Christmas story. To remove things like this or to remove the seemingly undesirable or the seemingly negative accounts is to be deceptive and to be honest. It is to remove some of the glory of our Lord's birth. That our Lord came into this type of world, to this type of people, with opposition to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And that's the Christmas story. That Jesus Christ enters into this world for that, because of that. And what do we learn? We learn as we come to the text this morning, we are reminded that Christ provokes conflict in the world, doesn't He? And it begins in our own souls. Now this isn't about Herod. This is about us. You know? The Christmas story is about Christ, but it's about us. It's not about Stalin. It's not about Hitler. It's not about the greatest tragedies. It's not about Columbine. It's not about Sandy Hook. It's not about that. It's about the reality um, that we are sinners, children of wrath, seeking after our own desires and our lusts, and that 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 without restraint, without the blessing of parents and 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 authority over us, and even government on on many days, that we would be much greater than we are in an evil expression. But God restrains that and brings the gospel narrative to us and provides hope that we can be what we are not, and that we can be more than what we are not. And that is the very people of God that, that we are reminded that, that Christ provokes conflict in the world. And not necessarily conflict in the sense of, of He came to provoke conflict, but His very presence, His birth. He did not provoke it in a, in a, in a intentional sense. He was not seeking to make people angry. It was His very presence. 
in the world. And thus Christ's presence, His proclamation, His gospel is offensive. Thus we must turn. We must be like Ephraim with our sorrow and mourn and come unto Him who, who, who are heavy laden and labor and He is the one to give rest. And we are to remember too that Christ provides comfort with His promises. That even though you think about that reality, don't you? You think about how in the world could you comfort a woman like that? I mean, we've lost little ones in the womb. Gave birth to a stillborn 16-month-old. I didn't know what to say to my wife. I didn't know what to say to myself. Didn't seem like any words were appropriate at the time. You just open up Job chapter 1 and you read it. You pull out the promises of God and you just speak them to one another. And you recognize on the other end of it that Christ is there. I don't know how to explain it. But there is a comfort in the new covenant as the law of God is written upon your heart and the Spirit of God comes to your aid and He offers um, comfort in some of the most tragic of episodes and scenarios. You wonder how in the world could a man like Job keep his head up? <laughs> you know, Because his Redeemer lives. That's it. I'm not here to paint a frilly picture of the world and tell you to, to feel better and to be better and go out in this world and they'll embrace you. I'm here this morning to tell you that Christ causes conflict. And if you are going to, and that, but that Christ prevailed in that conquest and He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning in His people and through His people now. And you need to have a realistic um, concept of going out into the world. But know this, Christ goes with you. Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and and 20, He is going with you always, even to the end of the earth or the end of the age. That Christ goes with you and comforts you and strengthens you. That Jeremiah 31 this morning, and yes, we are, there is, a, there is a true sense of sorrow and weeping, but wipe away your tears. Look up to Christ and find comfort and solace in Him. Why? Because He's the one who holds your life now. He is the one who walks alongside you. And while you don't understand, and I don't get Matthew chapter 2 this morning, you know, when the Word of God speaks forth, He comforts the soul, and you know that, that, that in that, that in Him you find maybe not understanding, but rest and peace in the purposes and the promises of God. How in the world could Job make it? How could he keep his head up? How could he survive the three friends? How could he persevere with his wife who's, who's totally opposing him? He, he does it because God speaks. How will you do it this morning? You know, how will you survive 2023 living? In the presence of Christ, you know there will be conflict. You'll remember that Christ prevailed. God providentially preserved Him. He died on a cross for a people. It's seated at the right hand of God the Father, living and ruling and reigning forevermore that you might live. So live. And live in comfort. And live in peace. And live in hope. Not living um, necessarily pain-free or suffering-free, but in the midst of that, sorrowing yet rejoicing because you know your Redeemer lives. You know it. If you don't know it, you need to know it this morning. You need to turn to Christ and live. Christ calls every man everywhere to repent. And if you're without Him this morning, you have no hope. There is no hope, little one. Boys and girls, men and women, outside of Christ, there is no hope. All there is is weeping without comfort and weeping without consolation. But Christ stands this morning in the power of His Word and the power of His Spirit to come alongside all those who will repent and believe. Know that Christ provokes conflict in the world, yes. But also to no church that that little baby born in the manger was providentially and supernaturally preserved by God to die for a people who were not his people, that they might be his people, thus live and live in the comfort and the power of the spirit of God. Wipe this morning away your tears.
refrain from weeping. If you live in this world long enough, it will make you weep. It'll make you cry. It'll make you soil your pillow with the tragedies of this world. It'll make you want to end your life because there is no hope. And that's that's the road that many take. To know that even in the greatest of tragedies, there's still a king seated on the throne who's ruling and reigning forevermore. And you are a son of the most high God. That this is for a season. And there's coming a day in which you'll rule and reign with him throughout all eternity in some form or fashion. Focus not on the here and now. Be heavenly minded. Look at the types and shadows that you may see the fullness of the stature of Christ and his ability. He's more than just a babe in a manger. Um, He's a king ruling and reigning now forevermore. And we look to Rachel's tears. We see a natural sorrow, but we also see a spiritual sorrow. And that spiritual sorrow, she, she has to bring to God and wipe away every tear. Why? Because of the faith that she has and the promises that he's given her. If that's you this morning, I beg and plead you to look to Christ. Look to Christ and live. He is a, um, he is a sufficient Savior. And he is a sufficient friend who can come alongside and strengthen you for the journey, give you more faith, and bring you to life in a way that you've never experienced it before, such that you can live and die. I thought about the Apostle Paul as we went through Philippians, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I mean, suffering in this world beyond measure and with reverence yet with joy. Job this morning, Rachel, and maybe you, look to Christ, live for him, die for him, be forgotten, and revel in his glory for all eternity. That's the new covenant promise. Let us not wait for eternity to live. Let us live now. This babe in a manger. Yeah, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you. We thank you for the glory that is in Christ. What a strange text, Father. Yet at the same time, we know that it's part of the biblical narrative. We know that Matthew was carried along by the very Spirit of God to record it for us and to draw our minds back to great and precious promises. So, Father, would you do that now? Promises that were initially made to Israel, but we know without a shadow of a doubt, Father, that they were promises made to us, if we'll believe. So help us, Lord, believe. Give us faith. Break our hearts. Give us sorrow over our own sin. Father, bring weeping for a season that we might turn to you. Father, let it be that just a season. And may may you bring us, Father, closer nigh to the Savior, to Jesus Christ the righteous, the gracious and compassionate Father. Help us to weep, yet not to weep for too long but to rejoice in the sovereign grace of an almighty and a holy God. Bring us, Father, into your presence where we know that there is joy and pleasure and delight forevermore. Father, help us this morning to delight in your presence. Help us to delight in your promises. Help us to think not, Father, this morning as we leave this service and and this sermon, think on the great tragedies of Matthew 2 or on the tragedies of this world, Father. But let us think upon Romans chapter 8 that that he who began a good work, uh, that, 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 Father, all things work together um, to those who love God, for good to those who love God and love Him according to His purpose, and are called according to His purposes, Father. Um, Father, help us to, 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 to quote and to say and to believe with the Apostle Paul, Father, that He who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ. Father, settle our minds, settle our hearts. Help us to, to think on You, Father, for the glory of Christ, the exaltation, Father, of the Son of God, that the world may recognize and that the world may know that Jesus Christ is Lord because we live.
Father, may they read the epistles that are written upon our hearts and written by our lives. And Father, be forever changed by the truth that is preached upon their consciences, upon their hearts, and upon their minds, Father. And why? Because we lived. Not that we may receive the glory, Father, but that Jesus Christ might be exalted above and beyond measure in this life, Father, insomuch as He desires and He deserves. So, Father, help us to think this day upon Christ and upon all that He accomplished, upon His cross, upon His resurrection, upon His ascension, and to remember that that babe had a purpose, and that purpose, in some sense, was us. So help us to live, Father. Help us to grieve no more. Wipe away our tears and help us to live forevermore, temporally and eternally, Father, in the conscious presence of an almighty God. And use us, Father, to change this world in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing number 440.